Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. been looking at Nehemiah because Nehemiah um, is a man in the Old Testament. He wrote the book of Nehemiah. And this is an actual person who left, um, he left Babylon and he, who went back to his torn down, worn down home country of Jerusalem that was literally taken apart brick by brick. All the people taken out of it and cast out over the empire into slavery and servitude. And he goes back to this hopeless situation to rebuild the work that God wants him to do. And so rebuilding is just a lot of work. Some of us might think about this and think, oh, yeah, it's time to rebuild. And some of us can think, can I just sit here longer? I'm just still so tired. And we get to that feeling of being worn down, and we hear that it's time to rebuild. And how do we do that when we feel worn down? How do we get up and get the resolve to rebuild when we're worn down? And so what happens is that we can get excited about rebuilding. We can get excited about the plans and the purposes that God has for us. But then after time wears on, that work can feel tedious. It can feel heavy. It can be hard. It can be stressful. It can wear us down if we're not careful. And what do we do? when we start to feel burnt out. And we could easily just feel burnt out. We could check out, we could fall out, we could crawl out, but how do we get the resolve to get up and rebuild and be a part of what God has for us? So burnout is an actual thing that social scientists has found in specifically workplaces and specifically with people who work with people. And as people of God, God has called us to work with people, right? We are building people. And that can make us succumb to burnout real fast. So burnout is what social scientists call a condition experienced by people where they develop depression-like symptoms as a result of aspects in their role. So burnout may look like signs of physical weariness, mental weariness, emotional weariness as a result of the stress that we continue to carry on. And so there's actually five phases of burnout. And the first phase is the honeymoon phase. It's exactly where we all want to be. We just started a new job. We're in this new relationship. We just got married. We just had a baby. Like all these really fun things. And we're so excited about this new season of our life. And then the honeymoon wears off. And it's not as optimistic as we thought it was. And it's a little bit harder. It's more like a labor of love rather than something really excited to wake up for. And then we get this onset of stress is the second step in burnout. Stress brings on a lack of focus, a lack of rest. We start to get irritable with the people who are close to us. We don't want to hang out with people as much. Uh, we, we aren't as productive as individuals anymore. And you know what? We kind of don't care. 
Um, we might feel more anxious, and then we start to neglect our self-care, maybe eating a little bit more unhealthy or sitting a little bit longer than we should. That's the onset of stress, and this is still on that normal level. But if we're not careful to guard our heart, that stress, if it's not dealt with, if it doesn't drive us into productivity again, then it can go down into the next phase of burnout, which is chronic stress. And here we start to always feel tired. We start to look for the bad in everything. We have a pessimistic outlook. Our productivity goes down. Our anxiety goes up. Our depression goes up. We start to feel threatened. We start to feel cynical. And this is where use of substances might come in with alcohol or drugs or sexual things. And so chronic stress then can lead further down into burnout. When, when burnout happens, it means that we're trying to escape life. We're trying to escape from stressful situations. We're trying to escape from social situations, even if it's life-giving to us. We start looking for problems. There's changes in our behavior. There's stomach problems. The physical toll that it takes on our body is very serious. And then the final phase of burnout, the lowest you can go, is habitual burnout. This is where someone's starting to feel chronically sad, chronically mentally fatigued, chronically physically fatigued, falling into depression. And so we see this spiral action from being excited about doing the work and then stress and then burnout and then chronic burnout. And that's really easy to fall into that cycle and it kind of happens without us realizing it until we wake up one morning and we're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just, I'm just done. I just want to quit. And that's where the way that we step out of this cycle of burnout, the cycle of stress, and being worn down is by rebuilding our resolve to do the work again. Resolve is, um, is the feeling of settling or to find a solution to a problem Finding a solution to a dispute, finding a solution to a contentious matter that makes us go, Ugh, but we're going to find a solution to it. And then we're going to decide firmly on a course of action. We're going to be gritty. Resolve is the feeling of being gritty about life, the, mm, the drive to get through, to get to the goals that God's put in our heart. Angela Duckworth actually wrote a book about this several years ago. I bet there's some people in this room that's read it. It's called Grit. And she does, she's a social psychologist, and she does a lot of studies on a lot of different people groups, like the U.S. Marines and teachers who teach and parents at home, like all across the board people. And she found that gritty people are people who have the resolve to finish a task even when it gets hard even when mistakes are made, and even when there's opposition. Which brings us back to Nehemiah. And specifically tonight, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 4, where we see that Nehemiah chapter 4 is a gritty chapter in our history book that we've been going through together. Today, we're going to look at a gritty gang of people who struggle with that same cycle of burnout. And we see them going from really excited about the work God has called them to do all the way down to that chronic burnout. And we're going to see how God lifts them back up and rebuilds their resolve through steps that they take through the chapter. So just to summarize, Nehemiah has left Babylon to come back to his homeland. At this point, Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem has already been rebuilt by other people, Zerubbabel and Ezra. 
and the people of Israel had already started rebuilding, but all that had come to a halt. And these people who have rebuilt are now being attacked by outside people groups who don't want them there, who want to drive them back out of Israel, out of Jerusalem. And they, they're being attacked because they don't have a wall to protect the work that had already been done. And so Nehemiah comes in with a God-given purpose. He has a passion in his heart from God to, to build the wall. He's ready to go. He's got an edict from the highest, most powerful king in the land with military power to back up the work that he's doing. And he comes in to rebuild Jerusalem. The city is like an unguarded kid on the proverbial playground. So if you want to join me with the elementary schoolyard, I want you to picture like the nerdiest, smallest child you can think of. And then I want you to picture the fifth graders who are already growing a beard, okay? And the small kid is surrounded by these bearded fifth graders, about to get the daylights punched out of him, okay? That's the situation that we find in Nehemiah chapter four. But instead of giving in to this outside opposition, Nehemiah and the people keep going. They keep at the work. They stay on the playground and they insist on playing the game at recess time. And so we find that the first step Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us in rebuilding resolve is, number one, identify your opposition. So I'd like to invite you into the scripture with me now, okay? Let's start in verse 1. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day or just offering, by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of the stones from this rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. You see, Jerusalem had fallen into rubble. But I want you to get the picture that this isn't territory that, that Nehemiah is stealing from the people in the area, okay? So a long time before Jerusalem was even built. I'm taking us back all the way to Egypt. When the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, God sent a man named Moses to Egypt to free his people and bring them out of a place of slavery into the promised land into Israel. So when the Israelites go into the promised land with Joshua, they're going back home. God had already promised them that. God had already given that land to Abraham. So they go back into Israel and they face opposition from the, Ammon, from the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Amalekites. And we're seeing those exact names still listed here a long time later. These people who had been trying to force Israel out of the land of Israel for hundreds of years through King David and King Solomon and all those kings, they now have the country to themselves. They're puffed up with power. They finally got those irritating people kicked out of the land, and they are powerful, and they can take over the land again. Except for a higher-ranking king sent the Israelites back, and they started rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple 
And not only that, they came back to build a protective wall around the city. And the people who held power, who were opposed to the work of God and opposed to the people of God, they didn't like it. They were very, very angry. Sanballat was like the ruling bully in the recess playground, and Tobiah was his scrawny little sidekick. They were furious that the Jews were coming back to the playground with the principal's blessing to make rules in the games and take territory on the basketball court. And so I want you to look and see how Sanballat and Tobiah escalate in anger, right? So the opposition starts pretty aggressive and then it gets worse, okay? So Sanballat in verse one, it was very angry. He mocked the Jews calling them poor and weak. So he's calling them names, right? Like the typical playground um, playground talk. He insulted their religious practices, made fun of them for worshiping Yahweh. The scrawny sidekick Tobiah was on the sideline offering his insults. Yeah, their wall is so weak that a fox couldn't walk on it. And your mama, I mean, it's like that kind of feel, right? With bearded power, and they're going to punch this scrawny kid in the face. And so these people are so excited to rebuild their city, but they're terrified of being torn apart by the people surrounding them, calling them names and insulting their God. The enemy's words sowed seeds of discouragement with feelings of... um, of oppression. The people started feeling overwhelmed by the work in front of them, and they were being threatened as they were doing the work God's called them to do. When the bullies saw their insults weren't making the people stop working, they got even more aggressive. In verse 8, we see that they made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. And so now instead of name-calling and mocking God, they start coming in with weapons. They start threatening children. They start threatening the safety and the lives and the well-being of Israel And so these guys weren't just a couple of bullies on the playground. We laugh at that. But literally, they want to come in and rip people apart. Literally, not proverbially. And so I want you to think about Sanballat and who he is because his name holds significance. Sanballat is actually named after one of the Mesopotamian gods. And the god's name is Sin, interestingly enough. Um, And this God is the pagan God of wisdom and creation. He is a false God setting himself up to be the God of wisdom and creation. Who is the God of wisdom and creation? It's not this Mesopotamian God. This is a mockery. This is a counterfeit God pretending to be someone that he's not. Because our God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the true God of wisdom and the true God of creation. And when you're living in your God-given purpose, doing what God has called you to do, it's essential to know who your opponent is because you have an opponent against you because you are for God. You see, your opponent isn't just against you. Your opponent isn't just against your soul. He's against your kids and your welfare and your stuff and the generations of your family. He's against the work of God in this world. And so he's not just against you. He's against God. And it's important to know, just like the Jews knew that Sanballat was their opposition, that Sanballat was their enemy, 
we have a face to put with our enemy too. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, Paul writes, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against um, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places, know your opposition. If you are following Christ and the plans that he has for your life, you are going to be opposed. The enemy does not want you to succeed. Um, Hell will rejoice at the discouraged believer who is distracted from the work and the growth that God has for your life. Know your opposition and don't be surprised by it. And the funny thing is, is when you know who your opponent is, you begin to remember who is for you. Because Satan isn't the antithesis of God. There's no equality there. That's like saying an ant is an antithesis to an elephant. There's no comparison. (laughs) Satan isn't omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. God is. Satan isn't omniscient. He doesn't know everything. God does. God alone is God. And once you know your opponent and knowing your opponent is causing riffraff in your life, you know your opponent and you think about how much bigger your God is and how much smaller the opposition how much bigger your purpose and your calling and how much smaller the opposition because God is a God who sees his purposes come to pass, that his purposes are bigger. How can we fight against the evil powers and darknesses of this world? If it's not flesh and blood, how can we fight that? We can't even see that. But God does, and God works through us, through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the faith that he's given us to take a stand against the enemy and to take a stand against the opposition that God um, has allowed us to fight. And once you know who your opponent is, you know how much bigger your God is. So when sickness comes against you, and when temptation comes against you, when burnout comes against you, and when any kind of difficulty or obstacle comes against you, know who your opponent is, but more than that, know who your God is and stand firm in who God says he is because God is the one who turns deserts into oasis. God is the one who keeps empty jars of oil overflowing. God is the one who brings armies out of dry bones. He's the one who gives us everything that we need. He redeems, he saves, he provides, he protects. He's mighty and strong and he's for us and not against us. And because of the saving grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have the authority to stand against the opponent that is against us because God is for us. Now, praise the Lord. And now when Nehemiah identifies the opposition and he hears the threat of Sanballat and his henchmen, Nehemiah writes about several different responses that the people could take, that we can take to rebuild that resolve to build God's kingdom. Rebuilding your resolve takes upward vision, inward reconfiguration, and outward action. And so the second step to rebuilding your resolve is to have an upward vision. Let's look again at the scripture in verse 4. Nehemiah writes, Then I prayed, Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. 
and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. When Nehemiah heard the insults and threats of the opposition, the first step that we see him do is pray. He turns his vision upward. He talks to God about it. I think sometimes when we're failing or we feel that pressure or that resistance, whether we're at work or home or in our relationships, our first, our first reaction is probably to do a little bit of self-reflection, like, what am I doing wrong? Or some outward reflection, like, what are they doing wrong? But our first reaction needs to be to pray to turn our vision upward, to ask God for help and to intercede in our lives. Now, our upward vision is a little bit different. So Nehemiah is a man of the Old Testament, and he's praying to the same God that we pray to. But since Jesus came into the world, he perfected the law, and he brought us into this new covenant, this new um, uh, promise with God. And so Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 45. He said, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pretty natural thing to do. I don't think I'd need a law to tell me to do that, right? But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for our enemies. So first of all, know who your opponent is, and then know that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, that your enemy isn't the person giving you a hard time, that your enemy isn't the person tempting you with a sin, that your enemy isn't the person causing discomfort or pressure or making your life miserable. That's not your opponent. That person needs Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. And we are called to pray for our enemies and to ask God to intervene in their life so they can be a part of the kingdom too. When we face opposition, we need to have an honest conversation with God. Just first off, first thing, God, these people are against me. They're making my work life miserable. Help them, Lord. They must not know Jesus. <laughs> when you're driving on the road and someone cuts you off, God bless you. Just God bless you. God bless that person. They're having a hard day. Lord, help them to know your love for them. This temptation is too much for me to handle right now, and I just want to quit fighting. I just want to give in. Talk to your father. He will give you the resolve that you need to make the fight that you need to fight to stand. When we rebuild our upward vision, when we have those conversations with our father, we recognize the power of our God, and we lean on him to intervene for us because it's not by our own strength that we're going to rebuild what God has called us to build. It's his strength. The third step we see Nehemiah do, so we've, we've recognized our opposition, we've had an upward vision, and now we're gonna have an inward reconfiguration. So we're going in verse six now that Nehemiah writes, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. I want you to hear that word, enthusiasm. So they must be in the honeymoon phase, remember, from the beginning? 
So they're working with enthusiasm. Yay, the job! But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Here we see stress and chronic stress going on in the work that they're doing. But we pray to our God. They had inward, uh, upward vision with God, right? We prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. And here we see burnout start to set in to the community. The workers were getting tired and um, oh, they begin to complain. The workers are getting tired, and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. And now our people have spiraled all the way down into that chronic burnout. So the people next join with Nehemiah in building their resolve through the upward vision. We see them in this passage start to cry out to God. It's no longer Nehemiah praying. The people have joined Nehemiah with that upward vision of praying to God. They're praying with them, but the enemy keeps coming in and adding pressure and disunity and, um, and frustration and aggression, and the people start to feel tired, and they're starting to feel defeated, and their attitudes have spiraled all the way down to chronic burnout. Chronic burnout can rob the enthusiasm and the joy in our work and in our labor. Not just thousands of years ago with the people of Israel today. Stress can cause a lot of hardship and rob our enthusiasm in our work. But God teaches us what kind of attitude he wants us to maintain in our work. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul again writes, Work willingly at whatever you do. As though you're working for the Lord rather than for people, remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as a reward and that the master you're serving is Christ. If you feel miserable at your work, remember who you're working for. Are you going to work for the boss who treats you awful? Or are you going to work for the boss who gives you a heavenly reward? Are you going to give your heart over to this relationship that stresses you out? Or are you going to give your heart over to the God who fills you and meets you where you are, who gives you abundance. When you work, work willingly at everything you do, and that's where enthusiasm can begin to fill our hearts again because God will not sap our strength. God will refill us as we work. We can enthusiastically and joyfully work for God because he will not take advantage of us. Don't let the enemy rob you of your joy and enthusiasm. And so here's the encouragement that Nehemiah gave to the work-weary, discouraged, and chronically burned-out people who are about to quit, is to make an inward reconfiguration. So we've had an upward reconfiguration, and now we're going to have an in inward reconfiguration. I want you to notice what happens after prayer. In verse 14, Nehemiah writes, Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And so when we have an inward refiguration, we need to refigure our feelings. We take stock of our feelings. Sometimes we try to ignore our feelings because they don't feel good, right? Or we try to ignore our feelings because we shouldn't feel that way. That never helped anyone to feel better. I shouldn't feel 
That doesn't help. That just puts shame on your feelings. You feel what you feel. You got to figure out why you're feeling the way you feel. So these people were terrified. And Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. Reconfigure your feelings. And this is how we reconfigure our feelings is we reconfigure our thinking. Because he said, remember, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. He's not like, oh, you can do it. You just got to work really hard. We can do it. We can do the work. Let's just do this. He said, no, don't be afraid. Remember God because God is faithful, that God is strong, that God is able. God is the one who does the work and fills us with joy and fills our souls so we can keep at the life that he has given to us. Remember the Lord. When we acknowledge fear, We combat fear with taking thoughts captive. The word says to take captive every thought that sets itself up against the Lord and the work of the Lord. When you think, think about whatever is true and noble and holy and pure and of good report. You have the power. God has given you the authority to have a sound mind to take control of your thinking so you can feel fearless and doing the work that God has called you to do so you can get gritty and keep at the work. We take captive those thoughts. And once we restore our upward vision through prayer, we have an inward reconfiguration of our thoughts and our feelings. We take the next step in rebuilding our resolve. We take outward action. There's action that happens with the change that God gives us. So let's listen to what Nehemiah and the people did in verse 14. Nehemiah writes again, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And so we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. They worked really hard for a season. This wall was built in 52 days. What day are we at now, Dan? We're at 22 days, so we are literally halfway through their wall building. And I'm wondering what the Lord is rebuilding in your life during this season, that you might be working really hard. I want you to know that there's a season of rest coming, but right now is the time to be diligent, to take outward action, to take an upward vision, to take an inward reconfiguration so you can take outward action and do the work that God has called you to do. I want you to keep in mind that this is a season. If you're at home raising children, It's exhausting and wonderful all at the same time. But don't give up your ambition of raising your children in a godly home because you're tired. The season is short. The time is short. Take advantage of every moment to instill the values of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and that they're a part of it and they have a purpose and a plan for their lives. 
If you're in your workplace and you've lost the enthusiasm of your job, take advantage of this season. Ask the Lord to refill your heart, to rebuild your resolve, to show you why he's placed you there because God places us for a purpose for such a time as this. Nobody else is where you are right now. You are there. God has planted you there for a reason. There's people there who need to know Jesus. And if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are just jerks. God has placed you there for a reason. They need Jesus, obviously. Rebuild your resolve. Pray for them and bear the fruit of the Spirit and make a difference in your world. And so we look back to our opening question. What would you do if you knew that you would not fail? I want to change it for just a second and invite you to think, what would you do if you knew that God would not fail? Boy, that changes, doesn't it? That when we step out in faith to the things that God has called us to, God is faithful, but if we're not careful, those what ifs, what if God doesn't come through? What if I don't see healing? What if this relationship doesn't work? What if I don't have the finances to make it? Those are from the opposition. That is fear, and God's perfect love drives out fear that God will never fail. God will always see his purpose fulfilled. You don't need to fear that. What would you do if the Lord called you to something and you knew that God would not fail? That we do fail. We're people. But gritty people get up and they keep going. Gritty people have an upward vision. They know who their opponent is, but more than that, they know who their God is. Gritty people have an inward reconvicuration. We submit our feelings to the Lord and we take captive every thought that stands against God. And gritty, godly people have an outward action. It's time. We're rebuilding and God has called us it is time to get to rebuilding. I want to invite us back to that worship song that we sang. And should the fire that once burned bright become an ember my eyes can't see, God, I will remember your sacrifice. I will abide. I will stay. I will remain in your love for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we love you and we magnify you and we glorify you. You are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. And your name is great and your purposes will be accomplished. You have spoken your word and it will bear fruit. God, by your word, all the earth, all the universe was made at your word, by your command. Oh, Lord, help us to join in with the things that you're doing, to have an outward action, to join the rebuilding, to join the building of your kingdom in our workplaces and in our homes and in our hearts and in our communities, Lord. Let us join the work that's being done in and through your church. God, we know the time is short, but we know, Lord, you are not bound by time. Lord, let your will be done. I pray for the one in this room God, who hears this, um, the stages of burnout, and it just hits home. Yes, I am exhausted. Yes, I am mentally fatigued. Yes, 
I am fighting depression and anxiety. God, you see that person and you love You love, you don't condemn, you don't squash us further down. You don't treat us, Lord, as our sins deserve. Your mercy is new every morning, and your ways are perfect, Lord God. You love us because we're your kids and not because we're your workers. You love us for who we are and not for what we do for you. What we do for you comes out of our love for you, Lord. I pray, God, that we would be a people deeply in love with you. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are fighting opposition that is way bigger than they can handle. Lord, it's not too big for you. I pray for an encouragement in their soul tonight. God, as they leave this building, that they would be so full of your Holy Spirit that they would feel undaunted. I pray for rest in this room tonight. If there's people who are overcome with anxiety, I ask for good sleep tonight. God, I ask for restful souls tonight. And help us to be a people busy at work, rebuilding your kingdom for your glory and for your honor. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.